At the end of Parashas Vayera, we have the narrative of the Akedah, the episode of the Binding of Isaac, surely one of the most powerful and interesting, fascinating episodes in Chumash. The episode of the Akedah troubled, exercised the, the analytical powers of the great medieval Jewish thinkers, and, and exercises the analytical powers of some modern Orthodox Jewish thinkers as well, although for rather different reasons. The philosophical questions that troubled the great medieval thinkers were basically, it said, Nisa Abraham, God tested Abraham, there are different ways to translate Nisa, but tested, Nisayon, we refer to Abraham's ten Nisayonos, what does it mean he tested him, God knows the, God knows the future, Hakult Safoi Baharishus Nisuna, what does it mean for God to test someone? That, that question, related questions, those were the questions that troubled the, the Rishon. The question that troubles modern Orthodox thinkers are more psychological, are more moral questions. How can we conceive of a God who tells Abraham to sacrifice his own child? How did Avram reconcile God's command with his conviction of uh, God's humaneness and God's morality and God's opposition to child sacrifice? Deal, we, the, the, modern ortho, the, the, the great modern Orthodox thinkers deal more with uh, the modern and the, deal more with, with moral and psychological questions. These were questions that did not necessarily trouble the Rishonim the way they trouble some of us, because for the Rishonim, I mean, God tells you to do something, you do it. How do you feel about it? I mean, that's maybe a secondary question, but the, the Anisayan in classical terms was, will I do what God wants, or will I do what I want? It's a question of, uh, it's a question of doing the right thing, of doing uh, of, of, of God's will, is, by definition, was right. And these type of moral and psychological questions Really rose to the really rose to the fore in the modern era. I've mentioned a couple of times these questions are, are of interest to modern Orthodox Jewish thinkers, modern Orthodox Tarte Mashma, modern thinkers who are Orthodox, in particular modern Orthodox thinkers, thinkers who who are aligned with uh, modern Orthodox philosophy and ideology. More Haredi or traditional thinkers, even in the modern era, are not necessarily as concerned by these questions. They tend to look at things the way the Rishonim did. God said, you do it, so you do it. I mean, what, what's the question? It's a temptation, obviously. You love your child, and so on. But, uh, but it's a simple question of right and wrong. God's will is, by definition, right, and it's obviously right. And, uh, and it's just a question of, can I muster the moral strength to do the right thing? But more, more modern thinkers, more and more westernized thinkers, grapple with this question. Non-Orthodox thinkers certainly grapple with it as well. Although, again, our concern is going to be primarily with the Orthodox, and at least the relatively traditional approaches to this question, rather than what other religions or other, other philosophers who are not committed to, uh, to Torah and to some approxim- approximation of Orthodox, Judea- Orthodox Judaism's understanding of the Torah have to say. We're going to consider various perspectives of, the, of uh, Torah thinkers in the contemporary era to, to these questions about the Akedah. I'll just mention before we begin, before we get to the modern era, we spoke about that Kedah a number of years ago, from more from the traditional perspective, and, and I noted that in my notes I did mention an incredible passage in the Malbim. The Malbim, 19th century, was very much a traditional thinker, 
much of his his work, much of his over was 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 devoted to battling the reform and defending traditional conceptions of Judaism. But he was certainly a uh, you know a brilliant and uh, sophisticated religious thinker. And he 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 says something truly fascinating in his in his discussion of Akeda. He says Akeda was fundamentally different from all of Avram's previous previous The things he was commanded to do. Were, were not against Seichel, they, they, they were moral, they were correct. He could do them in public without, without, without any shame, without any hesitation. And he could teach everyone, this is what God wants, this is what God teaches, this is what God wants us to do. This mitzvah, he says, what this command of the Akedah was fundamentally different. It was, it was a whole new level, it was, uh, it, it was a whole new degree of temptation, because this very much was against rational thought child sacrifice, an innocent child to be, or maybe an adult, according to the Midrash, but to offer an innocent uh, person to Hashem, is that what Hashem wants? Avram had spent his career battling the, the Ovdev Odezara, then battling those who, who believed in human sacrifice to their gods. He taught everyone, God does not want this. This is the ultimate toeva, the ultimate abomination to murder somebody and, uh, as a religious exercise. Hashem Hashem the utter, the, the, most, the most despicable abomination, the most enormous crime we can think of is to, is to burn their children in fire to their gods. And now Avram had to do this himself. So, so far, so good. This is, a, this is an idea that, that many, that many right, relatively modern Bali Muster and Jewish thinkers have said, that the Akedah was particularly difficult because Avram had championed the opposite his whole life. But now the Malbim adds something truly fascinating. He says... Because this was so disturbing for Avram, he could not do this. He did not want to do this publicly, even, even in the presence of his two Na'arim, his two, his two young men, his two servants who had come with him. Chazal said they were Eliezer and Yishmael. He told the Na'arim, Shvulochempomachamar, you remain here, ko, I and Yitzchak, we will go and, and perform the service. He didn't, why did he tell him to stay behind? So there are Midrashim, there are different explanations. The Malbim says, you know why he told him to stay behind? He was embarrassed. He says he was, he was embarrassed to do in front of them such a thing that until then he considered a toeva. He had, he, had an, he had an unimaginable degree of cognitive dissonance. I've been championing my whole life the doctrine that this is an abomination and God is, God is great and God is true and God does not want such things. Now I'm going to do it. So first he just says he didn't want them to learn. He didn't want them to make, this is God's will, I don't understand it, but he didn't want them to learn that this is the way to serve God. That's why he did it not in their presence. But again, but, but, but he goes even further. Later in his discussion, he says, he was, again, he uses the language of Bosch. He was embarrassed to do this in front of them, in, in the presence of his, of his Na'arim. Kasher yevosh adam lasos masa to'eva b'makam ro'am. As someone would, is embarrassed to do something despicable, to do an abomination in the presence of observers. Nevertheless, he says, his belief in Hashem, his emunah, and his love of Hashem, and his fear of Hashem, it overcame that, and he did it anyway. But it's an incredible thing. He didn't just say, okay, this is God's will. Must be right. I'm proud to do this. He, 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 had a, he had enough of an ingrained moral sensitivity that he was literally embarrassed to do this in front of other people. It, it must have been an incredible state of mind to be in. He, was, he loved God and he feared God and he knew that God wanted this and he had to do it. And at the same time, he was, he was embarrassed to do it in front of people. He said, I'm doing this, but I, I have mixed feelings about it. I'm ambivalent. I know it's the right thing to do on some level. I have intellectual knowledge, more, more than knowledge. He had, he had Avas Hashem and Yeres Hashem. He felt deeply this is the right thing to do. But at the same time, he, he, at the same time, he recognized that this is a problem. This is something I'm embarrassed to do. I, I, I have trouble doing this in front of people. 
So this, this is already an, an, an incredible, very modern conception of Akedah. Avram was torn. Avram did the right thing. Avram did what he had to do. But it wasn't wholehearted. It, it was very much, uh, on some level, he was simply embarrassed to, to, do, to do this in front of people. He, he, he felt it was against Seichel, it was against Yosher, it was the Cherpa, it was something that was, uh, it was something shameful, and, and he could not do this in front of people. Nevertheless, he did it, and that was the right thing to do. So this is already, uh, this is already walking down the path of the modern approaches to Vakeda, that it wasn't a simple black and white question. It wasn't something where Avram could just say, this is right, what's the question? Of course I'll do this, I'm proud to do this. I, the, I'm proud to be written up in the newspapers, this is the right thing to do, I have nothing to be ashamed of. He literally did have something to be ashamed of. He literally was ashamed, and he was ashamed to do this in front of his nar. The modern approaches to Vakeda vary, with, on, on the extreme, on, on, on one extreme, on the, the most modern uh, extreme idea, is that Avram simply failed Vakeda. Avram should have challenged God, as he did earlier in the parasha, in the context of Stom. When Hashem said, I'm going to destroy Sodom, Avram said, How can you do that? Mishpat. Can the judge of the, of the whole land not do Mishpat over here? Will, he not, will you not do Mishpat here? He argued with God. He remonstrated. And people on the left argue that Avram should have challenged God, his own son. He should have said, How can you do this? How can you ask for your son? My son, it's against everything you stand for. It's against everything I stand for. It's against everything you taught me. Avram should have protested and argued, and Avram actually failed the Nisayan of the Akedah. This is fundamentally, from, from my perspective, from the perspective of, tr- of traditional Judaism, of those who believe in the Torah, I think a fundamentally unserious approach. If you want to argue that Avram failed the Akedah, you can do that in one of two ways. You can either say that the Torah is simply wrong, that the Torah, the Torah espouses moral doctrines which are just wrong, or you can reinterpret the Torah to be indicating that, the, that Avram actually failed the Akedah. The first approach, if the Torah is simply wrong, is uh, outside our purview here, that that's just a rejection of the Torah. Uh, our, our, our discussion is within the, assuming belief in the Torah, assuming uh, faithfulness to the Torah, and accepting that the Torah is divine and the Torah is true. So, so I, I'm not going to say anything, anything further about the approaches that simply disagree with the Torah. There are those who try to argue that this is what the Torah is teaching us. The Torah does mean that Avram failed the Akedah. And that, I think, is fundamentally unserious, I know that postmodern approaches to texts allow all kinds of creative reinterpretations of texts and can move away from original meaning, but at some point, again, I I don't really understand uh, postmodern approaches and so on, but at some point, this is just playing games. This is not what the Torah says. The atiyadatik yuelo kimata, God says, the angel says, now I know that you're you're a God-fearing person. Kivarecha varechacha, I shall surely bless you. I'm going to expand your descendants like the sands of the sea, and, and the, your descendants will be victorious over their enemies, and they'll be blessing, all the nations of the world will be blessed in your children, because you listen to my voice. The, the Psukim are about as clear as you can be that Avram is being praised and and extolled for his, uh, for, his, for his performance in the Akedah, to argue, based on the fact that Hashem never spoke to Avram again, or other clever, clever you know, textual games that Avram somehow failed the Akedah, I think is fundamentally unserious. It, it's not a, not a serious way to read the text. The text clearly indicates that Avram passed the Akedah with flying colors. That's before we even get into our entire Mesorah, our tradition, the liturgy, the Midrashim, which all consider it beyond obvious that Avram passed the Akedah, the Kovash Rachma of Lassos Ritzonecha, we say on the Yom Noraim, that, 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 that Avram was Kovesh, his natural instincts of compassion and child to do your will. So in the schus of that, we repeat over and over in Rosh Hashanah, 
in the schus of Avram, the, the great thing that he did, please, uh, half of the Roshan and Davening is we're asking Hashem for his favor in, uh, in, as, as, as reward, as consequence of the Akedah. So fundamentally, certainly from Torah Shabal Pan the Masorah, and even from Torah Shabal Ksav itself, I think it's fundamentally unserious to say that Avram failed the Akedah. So, so what we have to discuss is, uh, is, is why. What, 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 how was Avram supposed to reconcile his, his theological, his moral conviction with, uh, with, uh, with, with what Hashem told him to do. What was Avram thinking? We already mentioned the Malbim's, the Malbim's comments on the topic. I should also mention, as we noted, what, what one of the questions raised by many modern thinkers, orthodox, unorthodox, but what, one, of the, one of the questions commonly raised is that why did Avram react so differently to the Hashem's notice of the impending destruction of Sodom and to Hashem's command to sacrifice his child? When Hashem says he's, he's going to... I'm sorry? What he realized in stone was that God knows everything. Uh-huh. He lost the battle in stone. And the second thing is, the problem is at the end of the Akeda, it's the angel who says, don't do it. We now believe that you're faithful. If Abraham was truly, you know, faithful, he would have said, I have to hear it from God. Uh-huh. One who told me, if an angel comes to you and says, don't put on film tomorrow, you would believe him. So, so these are interesting points. Arnie's noting, first of all, maybe we can say that, that Avram learned his lesson from Sodom, that he challenged God at Sodom. He saw the wisdom and the justice of God's ways, so then he took as a general rule that I may not always understand it, but God always has a cheshbon. God always has a reason, so I don't have to ask him. And, and also, Arnie's pointing out that, the, that later he was told this by an angel, so the, he, he, might have, he might have had grounds for questioning this and say, I need to hear this from your superior, I need to talk to the manager, so to speak, that the... That, but yeah, so that, that, that's a point that various Midrashim discuss, and both modern thinkers and the Midrashim discuss. Why did, he, why did originally it says Hashem spoke to Avram, later it says an angel spoke to Avram. Yeah, so th- th- that's an important point. I'm not going to get into that in, in, in any detail. But yeah, that, that is a valid point. Why was, Avram, why was Avram spoken to by an angel? Why was that sufficient for him? What would happen if an angel spoke today? Rambam famously says that all prophecy, except for Moshe Rabbeinu, all prophecy generally is, is via an angel, even though the Torah doesn't always mention the angel. We should always assume it was via an angel. So presumably Avram's first prophecy was via an angel as well. The question is why the Torah singles out the angel then in the second prophecy, and not the second speech, and not the first one. Those are important questions, certainly, although, again, I'm not going to enter into that discussion. But yes, the, those are important questions. But again, the question is, why does Avram react differently to the commandment to, to offer his son as a sacrifice to Stone? So Arnie suggests maybe he learned, maybe he learned his lesson. But, but this is a question, I'm not aware of much uh, traditional discussion of this, but this is a question that's raised by various, by, by, that's ra- that's raised by various contemporary thinkers. I don't have you know, too much to say about it. Again, Shari Turutzim Lo Ninalo, you can think of, you can think of all kinds of, uh, all kinds of Chalukim, all kinds of Turutzim, in addition to the one Arnie mentioned, but but, 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 in, but in general, we certainly have the conviction, as it says in Parshas Hazinu, Hatsur tamim mishpat, avel sharhu. Hashem is perfect, all his ways are justice, uh, avel. God is a God of faithfulness, of trust, and there's no avel, there's no injustice, there's no unfairness, tzadik v'yasharhu, God is righteous and, and upright. As we mentioned, uh, even though the psukim would seem to be unequivocal and absolutely clear, it's actually not so clear. As we mentioned, there was actually a pretty robust discussion in the, in the Rishonim, the Gaonim and the Rishonim, whether the Talmud in Brachas mentions a bracha that was recited in the, ba- in the base Avel, in the House of Mourning, during Brachas Amazon, that they would say, Lokech nefashos b'mishpat. It contained the phrase that God takes souls with justice. And some of the Gaonim, the Gaonim struck that out. The Gaonim, the Rif, the Rambam, they struck that out. They said, we can't say that. 
It doesn't have to be justice. The, the Gemara tells us elsewhere, has a discussion, the Gemara says that not everything, not all death is based on Zchar Onish. Some death just happens, some death, uh, that, that even though there's an opinion, ain't Misa below Chet, ain't Yisurim below Avon, there's no death without sin, that is rejected, that sometimes people die unconnected to sin, and therefore you shouldn't tell a Kevin Fashas a Mishpat, not everything is Mishpat. The, the, the Balitosvists say that no, you could tell a Kevin Fashas a Mishpat, we're allowed to say that God takes souls with justice, even if it's not a strict Schar uh, and punishment for sin, God must have some kind of mishpat. The Pasuk says mishpat. So how, how, why can't we say mishpat? Nevertheless, this was a lively discussion whether it's correct, to, whether it's theologically, liturgically correct to say that everything God does, all the souls God takes from this world, are all done to mishpat. That was actually a matter of debate whether that's correct to say that or not. But certainly, certainly the conception of God that, uh, that emerges from Tarash Baksav, certainly from Tarash Balpeh, is that God is perfect, even though we find Avram, occasionally people challenge things God did, God had an explanation, the people were asking for clarification, but God obviously had a reason for what he was doing, God was behaving with justice. There are attempts to argue that there are Midrashic views that God, uh, that, that God develops morally, that people correct God, and God agrees. I've mentioned this several times, there's a fellow named Dove Weiss, a YU guy who then went on to study religion in Chicago, published an entire book called Pious Irreverence, where he, he argues at length, based on uh, later Midrashim, that there's a whole genre of Midrash, where the, where, where the, where the Chachmeh Midrash, the Amoraim, put into, God's, put into the, the mouths of biblical characters challenges to God, and God sometimes accepts them and agrees that he should do things differently. So they try to argue that, he tries to argue that uh, the Maimonidean conception of God as perfect and unchanging is, is a... Is, uh, is a distortion of traditional rabbinic views, but I think this is this is this is again this is fundamentally uh, certainly not certainly not consistent with uh, with traditional Judaism, and I, I don't think it's necessarily. I'd have to go through all his examples in midrash carefully, but I, I don't think it's necessarily a very compelling reading of the midrash. Again, the biblical text, the midrash frequently refers to God as having a body. It refers to God as being fully corporeal in the sense of having a goof and emotions and so on, as we discussed a few weeks ago. The, we, we understand, of course, Rambam said it, but it was the general consensus as well. God does not have a body. Even though there are many, many psukim and many midrashim that say that, uh, many, many psukim and midrashim that, that do say that God had a body, we don't accept that. We understand that that's not literal, that's, that's literary, that's martial, and we, we don't lose a lot of sleep over this. We understand that these are not, not every word you see in the, not every word you see in, uh, in, in, in Tarsh Baksav or Tarsh Peh has to be taken entirely literally, so... I would say a similar thing is probably true, just offhand, with, without going through carefully all these, all these midrashim he brings, a similar thing is probably true with regard to the midrashim, that yes, they, 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 they make it sound like God has moral development, but that's uh, a literary mode of speech that the midrash used, and, and it can be interpreted uh, the same way we interpret all the references to God having a body. He kind of, he kind of gives it away, he gives his point away. His, his advisor, his advisor was a scholar named Michael Fishbane. He says about his mentor Fishbane, Fishbane sought to break Maimonides' philosophical hold on rabbinic theology. He says, reading Talmudic and Midrashic texts without the guiding hand of Maimonides, he has shown that many rabbis of old conceived of God as a changing, mythical, corporeal deity, etc., and he's affected by people like the mythic gods of antiquity. I don't think that is the traditional view of Midrash. The Rambam certainly would have laughed at you if you would have told him that's what the Midrash says. He would have said, you don't know how to read a Midrash. You're being... Uh, a hopelessly simplistic literalist, that's not what the Midrash means. 
And certainly when it comes to the, the corporeal aspects, we, we all, I think, take for granted that the various, that the various uh, parts of Tarsha B'Ksav and Tarsha Balpeh that use uh, grossly corporeal language with regard to God are not to be taken literally, and I think the same thing is true for these, for, for these things that Weiss makes a big deal out of, these midrashim that imply that God admits to uh, moral fallibility and imperfection and strives toward improvement. I think, we, I, I think it's obvious that we would say that the... These are these are mushal, These are these carry deeper meanings and should not simply be taken at face value. To uh, that, that that God is imperfect certainly. Hatzur tamim palo kichal drachav mishpat is certainly the overwhelming consensus of traditional Judaism that God is morally perfect and does not. And so when Abraham said, "Well, yes, mishpat," he was asking for, for clarification. He was praying, whatever he was doing, but he wasn't actually accusing God of being unfair. The question remains why he didn't react the same way to the to, to the Akedah, why he didn't ask God the same question. How am I supposed to understand this? How is this how how does this how can this be consistent with everything I know, with everything you've taught until now, with everything I understand of you until now? So that that, that still remains a valid question. But certainly the idea that God is is not necessarily moral is I think is is something we that we need not take seriously working within the perspective of traditional and orthodox Judaism. So the question is, how do we understand the Akedah? What was Avram's thought process, given that he had a conviction that Avram was perfect, that Hashem was perfect, and yet he, uh, yet Hashem was doing something, was telling him to do something, which sounds, which sounds monstrous, which sounds unthinkable. So what was Avram supposed to think? What was he thinking? What was he doing? So, that, so that, that, that's the question we turn to now. One of the most important and most interesting modern writers on the Akedah, certainly modern traditional writers on the Akedah, was Rav Soloveitchik, the Rav. The Rav was quite interested in the Akedah. He discussed it many times in his writings. I am no expert in the thought and writings of the Rav, but this is something that everyone quotes uh, in the name of the Rav. He, had, he, discussed, he discussed the Akedah in a number of different speeches and, uh, and essays and so on. Two of them in particular are widely quoted. Perhaps the most famous one is a speech he gave to the Ritz alumni in 1975, he focused on the notion of surrender. He says, Torah is Kabbalah Shal Malchus Shemayim, accepting, the, accepting the, the yoke of heaven. He uses the word repeatedly, surrender. Torah requires humility. A person, a person has to surrender to God. What do we surrender, he asks? We surrender two things. We surrender the everyday logic, what I call the mercantile logic, the logic of the businessman, the logic of the utilitarian person, we embrace another logic, Misenai. We have to accept that our logic, the logic that we're familiar with, that we work with on a daily basis, Kilo we accept that there's a whole different logic, a logic of Sinai, and it's not our logic. We've previously mentioned Rav Salvechik's comments that, just like Chukim, we understand are not accessible to logic, even Mishpatib, even the laws that sound logical, are not as logical as they sound. He says, thou shalt not kill, you know, it's very logical, don't kill, he says, but what about abortion? What about, uh, what about paradoxes of utilitarianism? We can kill one person to save ten. He says you can founder very quickly on, on logic. Logic will only get you so far. And we have to accept the conclusions of the Torah, which are Mycenae. We, 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 we have been fake in this in the past. We've noted that even human logic goes both ways, that the logic of Sinai is not alien from the logic of ethics. It, it often takes one side in an ethical dilemma. But the logic of Sinai is typically not something that would be unrecognizable to uh, ethical discourse on these topics. But okay, but Rav says we have to give up the everyday logic, the mercantile logic. Only Rav would, uh, would refer to this as the mercantile logic. He says we give up the mercantile logic, the logic of everyday, 
the utilitarian logic, and we embrace the logic of Sinai. Secondly, he says, again, surrender, that word surrender, he says, we surrender the everyday will, which is very utilitarian, very superficial. We embrace another will, the will of Sinai, he says. He goes on about this, about the idea of Kabbalah Salmal Hashemayim. He says that the that we have to recognize that, that the, the, the yoke of Sinai, it's a heavy yoke, it's sacrificial action. It doesn't mention the Akedah here, but the, the idea is very, very much the idea of the Akedah. We have to give up our own will, our own logic, and accept the very heavy yoke of Sinai. This is what Hashem wants, this is what we do, regardless of what we want. Then Rav Salavechik relates this to a topical issue. He was talking about the pressure on Halacha to reconcile itself with general notions of morality, Mamzerah's question, is the, the, the Langer case, I think, comes up here briefly. He talks about cases where there, was, there were accusations that the Torah was hard and callous and unfeeling and, and immoral. Rav Salvechik was not interested in apologetics. Rav Salvechik was not interested in defending the Torah and explaining why the Torah is deeply logical. He was completely not interested in doing that. He simply, he simply asserts, ringingly and resoundingly, we have, to, we have to have the religious self-conference to say, this is what the Torah says, this is what God wants, this is what we do. It's not our job to understand it necessarily, but we have to be confident in the Ratzon Hashem. We have to sacrifice our own feelings, we have to sacrifice the discomfort, as the Malbim said, with, with, the, with the embarrassment of Ram felt to do this in front of the Naram. That's the, that's the sacrifice, we have to give this up, we have to do what Hashem wants, even, even, if, we, uh, even if it's not what we might make us feel comfortable in, uh, in society. Salvation goes even further. We shouldn't even feel this busha. He writes, we must not feel inferior. We must not develop or experience an inferiority complex. Then we'll, ye- we'll yield to the charm, he says. We certainly shouldn't compromise, he says. We shouldn't even yield emotionally. We shouldn't feel inferior. Again, Malbim says, Avram felt embarrassed. We shouldn't feel embarrassed. We should feel proud to do the Torah. We should feel conviction and, 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 and in the correctness of what we do. We shouldn't feel, I have to do this, but I feel bad about it. I feel troubled. We should not, we should not develop an inferiority complex. He says, you know, certainly we shouldn't. In my, in my opinion, he says, Yadras does not have to apologize, not to the modern woman, not to the modern representatives of religious subjectivism. There is no need for apology. We should have pride in the Masora. We shouldn't compromise to the, to, with the transient values of a neurotic society, etc., etc. He goes on. He says, he talks about you know, terrible, terrible, heartbreaking cases where, where people were, uh, had to sacrifice their heart's desire and their lives' happiness because of halacha. And he writes, I understand the problem, but I understand, I feel it, he says, but we surrender to the will of the Almighty. That's that word, surrender again, he says. We surrender to the will of the Almighty. That's the Ratzon Hashem. And we shouldn't feel embarrassed. We, we should feel the pain, certainly. We should feel halacha is certainly sensitive to problems. It's responsive to people. Halacha has, the, has, has room for kula, for leniency. Rav Chaim, his great ancestor, Rav Chaim, Rav Chaim would try, Rav Chaim Salavechik, Rav Chaim Brisker, would try very hard to be mekel, he says. But there are limits. There are limits to how much you can be mekel. When you reach the boundary, you, all you can say is, I surrender to the will of the Almighty. I'm sad, he says. I feel bad for the terrible, the, the, the woman, a woman lost her heart's desire, she, and, and, and so on. But what can you do? That's Kabbalah's Hamal Cheshemayim. That's, that, that's Rav Salavechik on, that's, that, that, that's Rav Salavechik on sacrifice. This is what he said in 1975. Again, there, there, there was particular social context to this. He said similar things in 68. In 68, also speaking to the Tarit's alumni, he said, the Avos, the patriarchs, we find they, they built various mizbachos, various altars. What were these mizbachos? We don't even, the Torah doesn't even tell us about karbanas they brought, about animals. It just, said, it just emphasizes they built them as bath. What does that mean? 
Again, Mizbech symbolized submission, he says, surrender. The highest sacrifice is not an animal. It's easy to offer an animal. Animals, you can buy more animals. It's just a question of money. The highest sacrifice is when you offer yourself. What does that mean? It doesn't mean human sacrifice. Akeda being the exception, of course, but Hashem doesn't want human sacrifice. The Torah hates human sacrifice. The Torah condemns human sacrifice. He says physical human sacrifice is what we hate, but spiritual human sacrifice, submission, surrender, acceptance of God's will, Kabbalah Salmal to abide by His will, even if His will runs contrary to our aspirations sometimes, makes no sense to us. That's, that doesn't matter. We can't understand it. It's incomprehensible. We have questions. We have contradictions. We have to surrender, he says. We have to submit ourselves, those two words, over and over. We need surrender. We need submission. That's the highest, uh, that, that's the highest thing we can do. And that's what Avram did by building the Mizbachos. He gave up. His own, I, I don't know why he doesn't even seem to mention the Akedah here, but the Akedah seems to be the classic example of this. Yitzhak actually was a human sacrifice, or would have been a human sacrifice, as Avram planned. But, that, but ultimately, the sacrifice was more than the person. It was a surrender of his will. It was a surrender of his, of his ethics and so on. And that's what we have to do as religious people. That's what we're called upon. And we shouldn't be embarrassed. We shouldn't have an inferiority complex. We shouldn't, certainly we shouldn't, delete, we shouldn't lean toward compromise. This is what Hashem wants. This is what we do. And that's a, that's a key notion of sacrifice and submission. Elsewhere, Rav Salvechik directly discusses the Akedah. He says that the... That, uh, that Hashem called Avram, the attribute of judgment calls, it requires fulfillment without hesitation, you have to do it, you have to accept it, what the Rav writes in Alachuva, that there's no arguments, there's no symposiums, there are no evasive maneuvers, this is what Hashem demands, this is what you do, as, as the, the, that's the core of what it means to be a mammon, to be an adherent of the tradition, Hashem wants it, and you have to do it. Now there is an interesting question in general, as to whether how much value there is to our intrinsic uh, ethical instincts. Obviously, the Torah teaches us a great deal about right and wrong. As we mentioned earlier, of Salvechik has said that the, even something as, as fundamentally moral and logical as Losirtzach, our, our, our moral intuition only takes us too far. Questions like abortion, well-meaning people can have violent disagreement, questions about the other utilitarian questions, about what to do, questions of utilitarianism versus uh, deontological ethics and so on. Not always clear, and moral intuition uh, can still lead to great, uh, huge debates among people, among well-meaning people, God-fearing, upright people on both sides. But the question is, in general, how much room is there for, uh, for moral intuition? How much value is there to moral intuition? Should we just say that we should simply try to discern God's will and leave it at that? Or do, or do we accept that God... By making us human beings in his image, God left us uh, with, with, with a valuable moral faculty which, which, should, be, uh, which should be paid attention to, which, which should be carefully regarded. Rav Cook, or Rav Yitzchak Cook, was apparently one of the modern thinkers who was most emphatic about the, the value of the conscience, about the value of, of, uh, of, of, of letting your conscience be your guide, as uh, I think Pinocchio was told. That the that that the Rav Cook, Rav Cook writes in, in various in various in various contexts in various ways that the natural morality of a person's instinctive intrinsic morality, his sense of right and wrong, is not something that should generally be ignored. Rav Cook writes it is prohibited for a person's yerushalayim for his religious piety to to shove aside to squelch to suppress his musar hativi his his natural moral instincts. Such a Yerushalayim, he says, is not pure Yerushalayim. He says, what is pure Yerushalayim, he says? Pure Yerushalayim is one that enhances 
and develops the, the natural moral instinct. He says, God placed this moral instinct in the Tua B'teva Hayasha Shal Ha'adam. It was placed in the, in the Teva Hayasha, the natural, upright, moral sensibilities of people. And if, if the Yerushimayim develops it, he says, it's the Yerushimayim develops it into higher levels and expands it and enhances it, that's great. That's the ideal Yerushim. That's the correct Yerushimayim. But if it could be conceived, he says, Im Tetsuyar, if you found a Yerushimayim, that uh, people would actually be, be doing things in a better way, that they would, they would act in a way that was morally more wholesome and better, things that would be benefit, beneficial for the individual and for society. And because of this Yerushimayim, that's stunted and deformed into uh, unpleasant consequences. Such Yerushimayim, he says, is Yerapsula. It is problematic uh, Yerushimayim. What exactly Rav Cook means, I don't know. It's uh, what exactly Rav Cook had in mind. You know, the question is, it's a little bit circular. What is the metric by which you mention bad consequences and good consequences? As Rosalvechik says, sometimes Yerushimayim demands tragedy. It demands uh, people have to give up their life's happiness. That's what, that's what halacha requires sometimes. That's what Yerushimayim requires. Surely Rav Kook does not mean to say that a, that a halacha which, which sometimes results in uh, tremendous human misery is, is by definition incorrect halacha. Again, like much of what Rav Kook wrote, I am no expert in Rav Kook, even, certainly even less than Rav What Rav Kook meant, uh, beyond, beyond the poetry and the, the rich and philosophical language, I do not know. But uh, clearly Rav Kook thought that a person's natural moral sensibilities, intrinsic moral conscience were valuable. And any Yerushimayim which just, wrought, which just rides roughshod, which steamrolls over a person's moral sensibility, is at the very least suspect, if not outright uh, illegitimate. Uh, a person, Hashem made a person with, uh, with a good and correct and valuable moral conscience, and just to set it aside and to ignore it and to say, this is what God wants, this is what Yerushimayim tells me, what I want is irrelevant, that is not healthy, that is not morally healthy, Rav Cook says, that is not, uh, th- th- that is not correct. Elsewhere, Rav Cook says, even, perhaps even, even a more eye- eye- eyebrow-raising thing, he says, Simple people, simple people who are not uh, overly learned, the, the simple, ordinary, the, the hamonam, the amcha. These people, he says, in a certain, in harbid in, varam, in, in many respects, he says, have an advantage over the scholars. He says, because these people are born, or they, they have, they, they preserve their natural moral instincts. Hasechel hativi, the hamuser haatzmi, they preserve their, their, their natural intelligence and their natural morality. And they, it hasn't gotten corrupted by, the, by, by, by some of the sophistry of, uh, of complex intellectual analysis, he says, that, uh, the, that by the Ol Halimudi, that can crush and deform somehow the, the natural moral sensibility. Lamaisi says they do need guidance and details from the scholars. The scholars, the, the, the scholars do have to guide them as to details. Like, like Rosalvechik says, Lo Sirtuk is great, but you know, what, what about abortion? What about uh, utilitarian ethics? So certainly you're going to need guidance from the halacha about what to do, he says. But nevertheless, he says, the, 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 it, it's actually a symbiotic relationship, he says, because the scholars, the ones who Rav Kook refers to as the melumadim, those who are learned, they also need the, the uncorrupted, wholesome, natural moral sensibilities of the hamonam, he says, because they need that as well, because they're, with all their thinking and analysis, they, they've lost, to a certain extent, something of the, the simple moral sensibility, which is so healthy and wholesome and morally salubrious, he says. And so they each need each other. The, it, it, uh, in, in a healthy relationship, the hamonam will get the, the detailed, rigorous Torah and halachic guidance from the chachamim, the mulumadim, but the mulumadim will, get the, the, will, will, will be strengthened by, by, the pure, 
by the pure and simple and uncorrupted and untouched uh, moral sensibility of the, the unlearned who have, who have preserved that moral sensibility without all the complications of study, he says. This applies even to Tzadikim and Rishayim, he says, in a certain sense, or some Rishayim, that they still have some good, and, and they have something valuable that Tzadikim can learn from them, he says, and then the Tzadikim can, uh, can get even more, he says. It's uh, certainly a provocative idea that the Chachamim need somehow have lost something. Certainly, I, I don't think it's a very traditional idea that in all the Torah the Chachamim learn, there's actually a downside to learning too much Torah. They can actually somehow lose, lose and give up and somehow... Uh, lose something valuable that a person naturally has by studying too much Torah, they've lost some valuable simplicity, but that's what Rav Cook seems to be saying here. Uh, Mark Shapiro has pointed out these are fairly, uh, these, these, are, these are, are rather mind-blowing statements by Rav Cook. But, so this is a pretty extreme example uh, of the idea that, that a person's natural morality is not something to simply be ignored and squashed and say it's worthless. A person, even Rav Salavechik, I don't know that he would say that a person's natural moral instincts are worthless. In a case where the halacha is clear, where the Torah is clear and says, this is what God wants, we have no choice. We have to say, this is what the Torah wills us. We have to surrender. We have to sacrifice our moral instincts. But that doesn't mean that moral instincts are not a thing. That doesn't mean that a person's moral instincts are, uh, are, are completely worthless. A person has to recognize that the Elikim Asas Adam Yasher, that Akash Baruch who made us with moral instincts, and they're valuable, and they provide uh, illumination and guidance for us in the world. Nevertheless, at least according to Rav Cook, and nevertheless, uh, when the Torah demands something from us, we have to be prepared to, uh, to set it aside in, uh, in service of Hashem. And that's, uh, to the extent I understand it, that's what Rav Salvechik meant in all his different uh, discussions of surrender and submission, that at the end of the day, we, we, we have to accept this is what God wants, and this is what we have to do. We may, we may have trouble with it, not just personally because it's our child, but even morally and theologically. We may have trouble grasping, how can this be what God wants? Yeah, how can I reconcile this? But that's what's required. That's the surrender. That's the submission that God wants. That's what we have to do. There are those who have challenged Rav Salavechik. On the left, again, the Rabbi Herzl Hefter, a, left, a leftist, a left-leaning modern Orthodox thinker, has argued, he says, this, this idea, this interpretation of the Akedah that he calls the problem of choice, he associates with Soren Kierkegaard, Professor Yeshaya Leibowitz, and Rav Soloveitchik. This idea that, that it's moral, moral submission, that God wants us to take our own, our own feelings, our own, moral, our own moral sense, and just, uh, and just, uh, and, and, and just give it all up and, and say, this is what God wants, this is what I do. He quotes Rav Soloveitchik from 1975, from his, from his speech to Reitz in 1975, the Reitz alumni, that humility, Kabbalah Salam al-Chashamayim, surrender to the Almighty, and so on and so on. And we surrender the mercantile logic and so on. And uh, so Rabbi Hefter calls this, uh, calls this the position of Kierkegaard, uh, Yeshaya Leibowitz, and, uh, and Rav Soloveitchik. And he says he, he has trouble with this. He, he has a number of problems with this. He says that he says that 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 you know again it, it it'll it'll lead to the it'll it, that 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 it, it'll lead to a lack of it, you won't pay attention to the moral uh, moral sensibilities. He, he he has three objections. First of all, first of all, the Torah tells us that the Torah is supposed to be It's supposed to be the nation is supposed to see the great wisdom of the Torah. How are they going to see this if we simply ignore all logic and moral sensibilities and uh, and and just and just make a make a make a fetish out of submission and so on. Second, he says, you know, it leaves it divorces religion from refined human sentiments. That what happened to our, our again our, our ethical autonomy, our human sentiments. 
Finally, he says, people have gotten carried away. People have uh, this type of attitude of submission. Certainly, in other religions and other moral systems, it leads to intolerance and self-righteousness and arrogance. And people can, can lose their, their humanity and their, their, their ethical systems. So, Rabbi Hefter argues for a whole different reading of the Akedah, which I don't understand at all, and I don't see how it really fits into the, the Psukim, or, re, or, re, or really, or re, I don't really understand it well, but I don't really know how it resolves his questions. Even he has to agree that Avram was going to, since he's not saying Avram was wrong, he has to agree that Avram did ultimately practice submission to the will of God. And others have pushed back against this. Others, uh, uh, Dr. Rabbi Svisanensky has written a lengthy, lengthy critique of Rabbi Hefter, arguing that this whole idea that this Pshat and the Akedah somehow is, uh, is, a, is, a, is somehow is a product of these uh, brilliant but not wholly traditional thinkers, Rav Soloveitchik and Kierkegaard and, uh, and Yishai Leibowitz, is, uh, is a distortion of the, of, the, of the whole thing, he says. This is the traditional understanding of Akedah. This is traditional Mikra. The traditional Mikra was, Hashem told Avram, give me your child. And Avram says, okay, you're God, and that's what I'm going to do. The, the entire liturgy, or the entire rabbinic Judaism, whether, whether you emphasize the, the surrender or not, but, but clearly that, that was, again, in the time of the Rishonim, this was probably taken for granted. In the time of the Rishonim, it was understood that, of course, that's what Hashem has said, that's what he wanted. This wasn't even seen as being a particularly, uh, particularly interesting or profound uh, insight to that case. Of course, that's what Hashem wants. Hashem wants you to give up what you want, whether it's your, your child or perhaps your, your moral conception, and do what Hashem wants. That's the whole point of that case, to, to, to submit to God, to accept that because of love of God or fear of God or intellectual recognition that God is perfect, whatever it is, because of all these religious values we're supposed to have, Avas Hashem, Yiras Hashem, we're supposed to recognize that we're going to, and accept that we do what God wants, even if it's not what we want. That's what Zanetsky points out. This is hardly some kind of uh, idiosyncratic or, uh, or, or, or interesting and novel approach to the Akedah by these, uh, by these relatively recent thinkers. This is the traditional approach to the Akedah, that a person has to do what Hashem wants, even if we don't understand it. Again, that doesn't mean that we have to completely deny that there's such a thing as moral intuition, as the Malbim says, that there is such a thing as a person having moral sensibilities, and sometimes having a crisis, again, the, the Malbim seems to think that it's legitimate to, to have some level of cognitive dissonance and shame. The Rav Salvechik says we shouldn't feel an inferiority complex about it. So we can degree, we can, we, can, we, can, we can discuss, we can debate as to how far one should go in completely setting aside one's moral sensibilities when, uh, when commanded to do so by Hashem. We discussed, recently we discussed slavery. Again, we don't practice slavery today, so we just study slavery, so it's not as much of a practical question. But if we're called upon to uh, annihilate Amalek, as the Jews were in, uh, in the time of Shaul, what would happen if God would command us to do that today, to annihilate Amalek? Should we say, sure, I'm, I'm happy to do that? Or should we, have, should we uh, harbor moral qualms about uh, dashing out the brains of babies and so on? So these are legitimate questions. How far does submission go? Does submission mean we do it? even though we're, we're troubled and we're somewhat disturbed by it, does submission mean we simply, at least in this particular case, eradicate any kind of uh, moral sensibility we have? So these are things we can debate, but, but there's no question that the lesson of the Akedah, the mainstream traditional lesson of the Akedah is that we do what God wants, and uh, regardless of whether it's what we want or not, whether personally or morally. Shaul HaMelech, when, when, when he saved some of the Amalekim, when he saved some of the, the animals and Perhaps there was some dimension of compassion. He was told, no, that you have to do what Hashem wants, not what you want. Obeying God is the, you might have good reasons, you might have uh, logical or even moral reasons for doing what you do, 
but that's not the way we do things. In Judaism, we say that the, in Judaism, we say that the, the ultimate goal is to do what Hashem wants, and ultimately, I think that's the lesson of Akedah, with or without these, 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 these additional twists of Rosalavechik or the Malvim of, or modern Orthodox thinkers. The bottom line is the, 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 certainly the overwhelming consensus of traditional Judaism, of the, and I think a fair reading of the Torah, is that the, is, is that the passing the test means doing what Hashem wants, exactly how we're supposed to fail inside, exactly how we're supposed to reconcile our moral sensibilities with what, what, with what God is telling us to do, that is indeed a serious question, and that's something where, that, that, that's a point about which I think uh, serious and thoughtful Jewish thinkers can disagree, but the, but the basic point is that we have to do what God says, whether we understand it, whether we feel good, whether we feel good about it or not.